Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for today. Today, we'll be talking with William Cavert about his new book, The Smoke of London, Energy and Environment in the Early Modern City. Will, welcome to the show. Hi, Mark. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. It's great to have you here. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Sure. I am an assistant professor, um, new faculty member at the University of St. Thomas, which is in St. Paul, Minnesota, and... I've been here for about two years. Before that, I was um, a postdoctoral fellow at Clare College in Cambridge, where I, I guess I wrote most of the book that we're talking about today. And it came out of a PhD dissertation from Northwestern University, which I finished in 2011. Hmm. And what led you to choose uh, this topic for your dissertation? Well, I think broadly, I've always been interested in London, in British history, when I was an undergraduate, I spent a, a term abroad in, in London and also in um, Italy, and that term was sort of focused on material culture, built environment, art history, and I think I chose that because of a general orientation towards kind of wanting to kind of connect with the past in, a, in as real and as physical and as um, imaginative a way as possible. And so I've, I think I've always been interested in, in London for various reasons. But then this project in particular came about when I was a brand new graduate student um, living in Chicago, um, having moved there, I guess, a few months before. And I was, I was looking for a topic. I was reading um, a general history of, of London by Roy Porter, which is a kind of a, a popular accessible book. Um, and he was talking about the Great Smog of 1952, which was this week-long episode where people could see a few feet in front of their face and they were kind of falling off the road and into the Thames and, and thousands of people died. Um, and that just caught my imagination. And I thought, I wonder if it would be possible to write a history of London fog. And I remember lying there on my bed with... Um, the back window open that gave onto the alley where I lived in this kind of crummy little studio apartment and all of the smells of the alley, you know, the garbage and the car exhaust came into my, came into my room all of the time. And the idea of doing a history of urban pollution struck me as, as fascinating. And, and it um, brought to mind images of, you know, Victorian London p- chimney tops and Peter Pan and, and, uh, and, and Charles Dickens novels and things like that. Um, so looking into it, I discovered that London had been burning coal, which was the cause of the smog, since the late 1500s. And there hadn't really been any research on, on um, that early history of, of urban air pollution from uh, the Elizabethan period, the late 1500s, up until the Industrial Revolution. So that was the... That was the origin of the topic, and um, 
at, at early in my graduate school career, and it, it went from there. And it's really fascinating that there has been so little done about it prior to your book, given the uh, people that you cite in it. I mean, this is something that engaged uh, kings and queens, you know, scientists like John Evelyn wrote about it and, and campaigned to do something about it. So this isn't something that was sort of a rare topic for contemporaries. It was something that, that engaged them as much as air pollution engages us today. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that was that was a case that the book is trying to make, um, that this is not a, a crazy thing to talk about. Um, when I discussed this this project in this book with, with British historians, people working in the early modern period, they tend to sort of raise an eyebrow and ask, you know, oh, interesting, how? Wh- how, how do you do that? Wh- um, what are your sources? And as you say, this is something that lots of famous and important people from throughout the period um, wrote about, talked about, were affected by in various ways. But I think historians heretofore have seen that as kind of part of the background, part of the, the, the scenery of real life, of real history. And I'm trying to bring that to the foreground and, and argue that there is actually a story um, um, that can be told about London's physical environment, its, its, um, the state of its atmosphere and its air. Um, there's a trajectory there. One of the things that you point out early on in the book is how unique London is in the context of its time and how the problems that it has here with the pollution being produced by the burning of coal are ones that are really unprecedented. And I was wondering if you could speak a bit to that. How How is London unique in the context of uh, the early modern world and uh, – how did this problem of coal pollution begin to emerge? Yeah, well, it's it's unique in in England and in Britain very simply by being far, far bigger than anywhere else. Um, I point out early in the book that London is London is sort of the only large city in Britain in a way that um, doesn't have very many parallels elsewhere around the world. So. Um, Edo, uh, which you know, Tokyo in Japan is the biggest early modern city in the 17th and 18th centuries. But Japan has other very large cities. Um, did it with Japan. I mean, did it with China. Um, same with India. Um, and even though Paris do- dominates France, there are other um, cities that are far bigger than the second and third big- biggest English city. Um, and so, what that means, I think, for English kind of culture and English understandings of urbanity is that there's not a general category of the urban. There is this one um, outsized capital, which is entirely unique in in just about every way. Um, And then there's everywhere else. So London is, by 1700, something like 20 times bigger than the next biggest city. So I think that dynamic is important because... um, England doesn't have a group of big cities. It has London. And within Britain, that means that the London market economically is qualitatively different than everywhere else. London grew in the 16th century during a period of kind of general population growth. Um, and it exceeded the, its previous kind of maximum uh, inhabitant, uh, number of inhabitants, its previous maximum population by sometime in Elizabeth's reign in the 1560s or 70s. Um, and what I think this meant for coal consumption was that the wood supplies that had been 
kind of adequate for uh, forever, basically, for, for centuries, um, going back into the medieval period, uh, weren't adequate anymore because London doubled in, in more or less a generation. Um, so whereas in 1550, London hadn't really changed very much in population by 16, um, compared to like its previous uh, century, by 1600, it was far larger, larger than it had ever been which presents a new problem for um, supplies. And there's not really wood available to the market that can fuel its hundreds, hundreds of thousands of, of fires and, and hearts. Um, this is a general problem across the early modern world. Japan, the Netherlands, Eurasian cities have kind of fuel shortages. Um, but Britain is unique in solving that problem by turning to mined coal, coal from underground. I, mean, I, could, I could clarify that um, I'm talking about mineral coal, which has um, been produced by over millions and millions of years, and that's different from charcoal. Charcoal is um, processed wood. It's just sort of wood that's been had impurities burned off. Um, so I'm talking about mined coal, which is, which is in this period basically from Newcastle, the area around Newcastle. In north, northeastern England, about a couple, a couple hundred miles north of London. Um, so by, really by about 1600, London has solved or is in the process of solving um, a general early modern problem in a, in a unique way. It's, it's the only city in the world that's turned um, to mined coal in, in, on such a scale. Um, and I also argue that it probably London probably consumed more energy than anywhere else in the world. It was one of the biggest cities in the world, but it wasn't quite the biggest. Um, but the information that I was able to find regarding wood consumption and, and wood burning in Paris, in, in Japan, um, um, in China suggests that London, I would guess, burned, uh, consumed about twice as much heat energy as anywhere else in the world. Um, in, in the early modern period. So it was the world's leading consumer of energy, and it was by far the leading consumer of mined coal. Um, and the mineral coal that it was using was fairly high in sulfur as well as other impurities. And so that's the, the basic reason for the air pollution, that, that London is, has more fires than anywhere else that there is, and its fuel is dirtier. And yet, to think of it just as a heating issue really limits the dimensions here because, as you point out, it's not just uh, being used by residents, it's also being used by uh, industries. Uh, and you cite in particular brewers and uh, glassmakers among them who rely upon fuel as an indispensable part of their trade. And as they're growing and as their numbers are multiplying with the growth of the city, you're starting to see all of these, uh, all these uh, fat, uh, factories, probably a little premature of a term, but these businesses beginning to establish themselves uh, in the heart of this very compact, uh, physically compact area. Yeah, and I think brewers are the best example there. Um, and they're the ones that contemporaries cited the most often because to scale a brew house up um, wasn't particularly complicated. If you could, you know, if you, if you could brew um, a couple hundred gallons of beer, you could 
pretty much just as equally, just as easily brew a few thousand. You just had to have more equipment. And so the barrier to doing that was investment and skills, but there was no technical reason that breweries couldn't get big. And so they did. And they realized very quickly that the substantial fuel needs um, that breweries had, because, you know, they have to, they have to boil all, all of the beer and ale that people are drinking. Um, so that they, they consume a lot of, of fuel, and they realize really quickly that, that coal is just more economical and easier. Um, so when people can complained about smoke in the late 1500s and into the 1600s, if they were talking about a specific um, polluter, it was breweries more often than, than anything else. And also breweries were were sprinkled around the city. They were they were clustered in certain areas. They were clustered along the river, but there was usually a, a brew house not too far from from most people. Um, and in fact, one of the the chapters spent some time on a conflict between brewers in Westminster um, who had these these. No, not factories, but really substantial um, operations in places that are, you know, literally a stone's throw from Westminster Abbey, from the Houses of Parliament, from Whitehall, from St. James Palace. Um, so the, these breweries are literally, literally in the king's backyard. Um, and in the 1620s and 30s, especially the, the monarchs, um, James I and Charles I, really disliked that. They thought it was kind of a stain on the city. You go all the way back to Elizabeth and you introduce yeah. uh, the, the issue of, of regulation with Elizabeth's decrees trying to ban breweries from near the palace. Right, yeah. Yeah, and I think I think those are interesting in, in sort of two directions because um, on the one hand it shows that, I mean, one of, the, one of the main purposes of the book in general is to show that urban air pollution was a big concern of people 300 years before modern environmentalism um, comes along. So there's a long pre-modern story here. It's not exactly like modern environmentalism. It's not the same thing. But it shows that that concern about urban pollution, dirtiness, environmental change um, is not as, as recent as we tend to think that it is. And so hearing a, a monarch, Queen Elizabeth, Charles I, complain about air pollution is, is kind of striking. On the other hand, it's it's noteworthy how limited their complaints are. Um, like they do not care about public health in, in, in these moments. What they're worried about is the space around the monarch. Um, Elizabeth kind of negotiates with the brewers and and well, her her and her government basically say, "Okay, you can do your jobs when I'm not around. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want it bothering me. I but I don't." particularly care if you bother other people. So, and, so basically it's the 16th century equivalent of nimbyism. <laughs> exactly. Except that it's not, it, it, but the my has to be powerful and socially important. The thing about nimbyism is that, it, you know, the, the not in my backyard mentality is that you can't, you can't defend that in the modern world because it's supposed to, you know, we're supposed to live in a democracy. We're supposed to all have equal rights. Environmental injustice is supposed to be a bad thing, but in the 16th and 17th centuries, of course, it's a monarchy, it's a hierarchical society. So for the king to say, my backyard is more important than your backyard, is kind of obviously right in, in, in some ways. So um, 
so it is just like nimbyism but but we have to remember that that the sort of society is um, intensively hierarchical and, and that kind of justifies this so brewers get in some trouble they have to negotiate with monarchs um, and as you say there are other industries um, that use a lot of coal to glass makers um, brick burners do and they're especially interesting because you make bricks on the outskirts of the city you make bricks you know by definition where there's no building head um, I mean that's that, that's kind of where the clay comes from. Um, so you have these people who are kind of living on the edge of the city because they want the best of both worlds. They want the countryside. They want the country and the city together. It's kind of the suburban dream. You, you mentioned uh, Buckingham's uh, motto on on his house uh, that the, the 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 country and the city. I think is how is is how you quote it as. Yeah. Right. And um, and so when that. When, when Buckingham House is built in about 1700, um, it's it's uh, kind of not crazy to say that because Buckingham House is near the outs- is near the edge of the city. Um, but now, of course, Buckingham this is Buckingham Palace, and now Buckingham Palace is right in the middle of the city, and it's surrounded by lots of sprawl. So there's this dynamic where people are always on the, especially uh, rich people and, and people that can afford really substantial houses. They're on the edge of the city because that's kind of the cleanest place where you can be but still have access to city life. And then they get really upset when they discover that there's some guy in the field out their front door digging up clay and building a huge brick kiln. And these places could burn hundreds of thousands of bricks you know, in a day or two um, and consume really large amounts of, of the, the cheapest, dirtiest coal that, the, that was available. So these are examples of uh, coal-fired coal air pollution being problems that um, are not confined to kind of poor districts. They're not confined to industrial neighborhoods. They, they're, they're probably worse. I think they, they are worse in poor districts, and they are worse in, in the east end, east end where industry gradually um, congregates. Um, but in the early modern city, industry and production is kind of everywhere in the city. As you say, it's sprinkled around the city um, and people can't really escape it, but they're kind of constantly trying. And, and that's one of the other uh, aspects of this issue that you bring into it, which is it has, it's not just a matter of industrial production, heating, pollution, but it's also wrapped into general attitudes and views of the, of, of the urban environment itself. And there's this aspect of the book which you uh, introduced midway through, which is not the, just the pollution issue when it comes to coal, but also the issue of coal supply and and uh, managing or re- trying to regulate the coal trade and how at this on the one hand you do have this issue of pollution but you also have this issue of needing coal in the urban environment uh, because the alternative could be potentially worse yeah and that's the that's the basic problem and one of the main points of the book is um, that we in the modern world in the 21st century world have a fundamental problem that that cheap energy and um, abundant consumption 
is great in a lot of ways, but it has environmental costs, and we just haven't figured out how to reconcile those. And that dilemma gradually becomes apparent to people during the early modern period, I think. So the idea that that coal smoke is bad, but coal burning is good, and how can how can we you know reconcile those two things? That problem, I think, becomes evident to people gradually and slowly over the course of of the period. And and one of the reasons for this is that we were you know we were talking about industry and and industries like a, a big brew house or a or a huge brick kiln. They attracted a lot of complaint and they and they attracted lawsuits. Um, but I think the majority, the clear majority of the coal that was burned in the city was not industrial. It was just burned in people's fireplaces. It was, it was in the hearth. It was at home. Um, and in that sense, everyone was to blame. There was no way, there was kind of, in some sense, there, there was no point in arguing that London should get rid of coal, um, because everyone used it literally every day for you know much of the year, and there was no clear substitute, as you say. So there there are one or two people throughout the period that imagine what a substitution would look like. There's one guy who writes a an interesting treatise in the late 17th century, and he says, "Okay, we we could fuel London with trees, and here's how we could do it." And it's this big project. Um, basically, he'd have to kind of have forest plantations in the suburbs, which of course goes absolutely nowhere. Um, and it, and it doesn't even come close to happening. Um, and at, kind of, at, at the same time though, it, it reminded me a little bit of the Greenbelt proposals, mm-hmm. which, which, which end up, you know, there is an effort to implement in, in the 20th century is an effort to try to, uh, you know, preserve some of that. So I, I thought in that respect, you're referring to, uh, uh, Evelyn's, uh, pamphlet, correct? Um, no, actually I was, well, there's that too. His is more famous, but, um, but actually, Evelyn, um, so John Evelyn's pamphlet, Fumifugium, is the, the, most, the most famous, certainly, and kind of the most developed attack on, on air pollution in this whole period. Um, it's written in 1661 at the Restoration, and it's written for the king, and the idea is he's pitching it to the king. Um, and it's, and yeah, as you say, one of his proposals is, really is kind of a green belt. He wants big... Um, he wants huge flower gardens surrounding the city so that there will be this constant waft of beautiful air um, perfuming everybody all the time. And this will improve manners and it will make the city more governable and it will just basically accomplish every possible benefit. Um, but to make that argument, Evelyn, Evelyn has to say that um, it's really only industry that is causing the problem. If we just kicked out a couple dozen brewers and sent them down river, um, um, sort of five miles out of the city, then that would solve the problem because he says um, the amount of coal that we burn in our fireplaces is really trivial. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, and, and I, this is, um, I, I'm not sure to what extent he believes that. I don't know. I mean, I. Uh, I, I've I've done the I've crunched the numbers as well as I can, and I think that that the industrial consumption in, by the 17th century is probably at most a quarter of of the coal that's burned in London. So I think Evelyn's hugely wrong, um, and so he basically his argument is premised on the idea that 
that moving around the coal consumers mm-hmm. would solve the problem. But there's um, there's another guy who's less well known in the in the a few decades later who argues that we could actually have tree plantations um, on, on the outskirts of London, and so that we wouldn't have to burn coal at all. So Evelyn wants to move the coal burners around. Um, um, and this proposal is about eliminating coal burning in and of itself. Um, and he's, and I bring him up because he's the only person that I ever found who thinks that London can do without coal. Everybody else thinks that it's, it's a necessity one way or another. Um, so the, so yeah, the basic, the basic problem is everybody uses this every day. Um, the poor use it more importantly than the rich. Um, we need it for production. We need it for um, trade um, in a lot of ways because a lot of the a lot of the industries that coal uh, fired were really competitive industries, especially um, sugar refining. Um, so the fear was if we don't outcompete the French and the Dutch, uh, the Germans at, at sugar refining, you know, we will lose all of those jobs. We need this cheap, basically cheap energy to. Um, to create jobs. Um, so on the one hand, there's this economic um, imperative and the social uh, stability that goes with it. Um, on the other hand, there are clear environmental costs to that. Nobody offers a compelling uh, solution to that problem throughout the whole period. So all, all responses are kind of partial. They're, they're, they're half solutions or they're sort of non-solutions. And so the, the word that I use in the last section of the book to describe all of these are accommodations. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's, it's pretty clear to, to anyone who bothers to think about it that London can't do without coal burning, that, that um, smoky air is inevitable uh, in the sense. So the thing to do is not to change it, but it's to adapt to it. You know, how can how can we make this livable since we can't really change it? And, and I thought, uh, in in one sense, the best case study you provided was in Chapter 5 when you were talking about the Earl of Bridgewater. Mm-hmm. And you described this case where he has this neighbor who is a soap maker. And so for Bridgewater, he's not seeking a, you know, to, to, to ban coal consumption in, in all of London. He's not trying to uh, stop it. He's just basically trying to stop this guy next door from producing all the smoke that befouls his views and, and sometimes even gets in his house. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think the guy's um, soap boiling, and soap is another industry that used, used coal a lot, um, his soap boiling works is like next to his garden. So the, the smoke is kind of pouring into his garden. And this is an earl, so he's got a substantial house. But it's in a really um, busy and crowded um, and fairly kind of industrial and a craftsman kind of level of, in, of industry, a, a, a busy part of the city. Um, and so, yeah, he has this neighbor that he doesn't know what to do with. And he writes he writes some letters to a... a a neighbor who's got some more legal expertise than he does. And he basically says, you know, what do I do? Um, he retains a, he retains some legal advice and the guy tells him, um, well, here are your options. And the options are, you can wait for the city government to do something about it, which is sort of legal advice that doesn't go anywhere because it was probably clear that this, that nothing would happen. Um, 
what he's referring to as the the ward moat. Wards are sort of London neighborhood jurisdictions, and every year there's this chance for inhabitants to present their neighbors for various offenses, for for nuisances, for breaking other rules. So he says, well, you can wait for Christmas time and present him at the ward moat, and then maybe the Lord Mayor will do something about it, about about this problem. Or you can take him to court. You can sue him for private damages. And so um, Bridgewater has has this... Um, his letters spell out the possible options in a way that um, are hard to find. Example, a lot of examples of people saying this um, with with his level of clarity. Um, but this is what people had as a possibility. They could hope that the magistrate, the the the, the city alderman, the lord mayor, um, or justice of the peace would decide that a particular house is emitting too much coal and try to make them stop. Or they could sue them for damages, but that's hard because you have to show you have to show actual damages. You couldn't. There, there was no legal mechanism um, that Bridgewater or anybody else had access to for abating a nuisance. You could only really get um, damage, so you had to show that it cost you money. Um, saying I, I, I have a I have a cough and this is going to kill me doesn't help in, in a common law court. And the other option is to try to is private negotiation. So Bridgewater's an earl; he has he's rich, and one one possibility for him is to buy this guy out. Just say, look, what what would it take for you to leave and move away, or you know, what would it take for me to buy you out of your lease, or to, for me to buy your your soap your your soap uh, production facility? Um, and so one of the points about about this is. You know, there's no modern environmental zoning here. There's no EPA. There's no um, there's no clear law against pollution. But this society does have ways of dealing with this, and all of the all of these ways, regulation, negotiation, um, and litigation, they all happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're all really imperfect solutions. You can only sue somebody if if they're if they're emitting more coal than everybody else. You know, if they're if they're worse than the other neighbors, um, but as I said, everybody is everybody burns coal every day, so you can't you can't sue the entire city. But that's also why we end up pivoting back in a lot of these uh, in, in a lot of these cases to the industrial producers because they were the ones who were in a sort of customer not customer but a uh, but a consumer by consumer uh, measure. They were the ones who were the biggest polluters. As a percentage, they were you know only as you said a right. quarter. Yeah, but. They were the ones who were whose you know smokestacks were belching out the most smoke relative to everyone around them. Yeah, and um, so it, it's possible to sue one of those people, but the the common law was um, a bit unclear on who should win because there there were comp- there were contradictory principles within the common law. One was a homeowner has the right not to have their house be uninhabitable. So if if we're neighbors and I'm making you your house unlivable, I'm blocking your light and choking your air and and kind of rendering your house useless, then you can sue me for damages. On the other hand, I have a right to earn a living. I have a right to be a, we need soap. The world needs soap and I can make it. That's that's um kind of enshrined in in common law principles that that a legitimate trade can be practiced. Um as long as it's in a fit and reasonable place. 
So the question is, what can you do where, how much is too much? Mm-hmm. So these are all kind of relative questions. They're all, um, they're, they're all kind of difficult. So there were legal cases where individuals sued po- po- um, polluters. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that happened, but I think they were intermittent. Um, I'm not sure how much difference they actually made. If the polluter had been there for a long time, if somebody said, well, this, brew, this has been a brew house for 150 years, and you just built your house next to me last month, I have precedence. I, I, I have a stronger legal claim to this space than you do. Um, that was another way that polluting was entirely legal. One of the other aspects that you introduce into the book is you talk about how the understanding of coal pollution intersected with the changes that were taking place in terms of mankind's understanding of the world around them, because you talk about the scientific revolution. Mm-hmm. And one of the other aspects of the book you bring in is how they perceived the effect of pollution, how they understood it in terms of uh, the humors and how they perceived what it was that needed to be done about smoke. Yeah, and... The argument there is that during the, the scientific revolution or the, the, the changes to natural philosophy that take place during the, uh, the 17th century into the 18th century, on the one hand, these developments allowed people to talk about how and why smoke was bad in newly specific ways. So somebody could read Newton or maybe more likely read a sort of popularization of Newton and they could claim that smoke was bad because, uh, for physical reasons, because it was heavy, because it blocked the body sort of through its physical properties. It was also possible to be influenced by, and, and I, have, I have examples of this, to, to be influenced by um, changing chemical ideas, ideas about, about chemistry and how um, sort of the, the, the body is composed of chemical reactions and processes. And to say smoke is bad because it's full of sulfur and sulfur hurts the body. Um, So people could complain about smoke or um, doctors could say that it was a problem for their patients using kind of up-to-date, cutting-edge, natural philosophical and medical and physical vocabularies. Um, So in a sense, the ways that people are making sense of smoke are, are, are mediated by the discoveries of the scientific revolution. Um, but one thing that I stress is that the scientific revolution doesn't really provide any really clear way of evaluating what good air is and how we know what kind of air has what effect on the body. So in a sense, the, the bar of proof is, I think... Um, raised by the, in, during this period, it's it's harder to say conclusively and persuasively, um, especially in a place like a court of law, that um, a smoky chimney is is bad for someone. You can make all sorts of claims, and they can be you you can cite um, the latest discoveries in physics and chemistry, um, but the the. But it would be hard to demonstrate that through the kind of you know experimental data that would satisfy um, a, a real Baconian. Um, I, I have a discussion of of demography in that chapter, where 
um, which I which I was surprised to discover because um, what we see there is the creators of demography of counting 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 living and dead people and extrapolating um, um, information about about the causes of life expectancy and so on. Um, the founders of that in, in the 1660s, they say London, air, London coal burning kills people. It, it depresses life expectancy in London. They're pretty straightforward about that. And then over the following century, um, that claim gets watered down a little bit. And so um, the, the successors to John Grant, the pioneering demographer, sort of take his claim and they're more interested in um, the moral problems uh, that, that London has. They'll say, well, you know, there's this idea that coal smoke kills people, but it's probably um, lechery and luxury, really, because um, we all know that that's what London's all about. <laughs> so so, there, so on the one hand, you can, you can make an argument in 1662, as Grant does, or over the following decades, um, about smoke's harm sort of through cutting-edge language, but that same language makes it um, equally easy to make the opposite argument. So it's, it's difficult for people to um, categorically establish that smoke is dangerous and therefore that anybody should do anything about it. So this is another way in which there's this widespread concern, um, dislike of urban pollution in London, um, but there are all sorts of reasons why it doesn't actually it doesn't actually win. They mm-hmm. L- London London's pollution gets worse and worse throughout the entire course of, of the period that I'm studying, and for more than a hundred years after that. And, and that re- that comes across over the progression of the book. How you write about how uh, James and especially Charles the first in mm-hmm. the uh, 1620s, 1630s really are make a uh, a, a you know, considerable effort to try to address this problem in, in the ways that they know, and then you get to uh, you get to uh, Anne yeah. uh, at the end of the century, and by that point, it seems that they're sort of sort of just shrugging their shoulders and say, "Well, you know, this is the world in which we live," and they begin to seek uh, alternative responses to this issue of, of, of pollution. Yeah, and. That's right. I mean, if you if you look at all of the the monarchs of um, England across the 17th century, um, there's a sort of rising and falling curve of of concern. So Elizabeth, um, a few times now and again, um, gets angry at the brewers that are bothering her personally. Um, James James doesn't really care about smoke all that much, but he does have one episode where he tries to improve St. Paul's Cathedral, and he and so smoke is bound up with his, his church politics. Um, Charles I in the 1630s, I think, really does dislike um, smoke a lot, um, and he also cares about royal space, so he wants to build a capital that's fit for the kind of monarch that he thinks he is. Um, and he sees smoke as incompatible with that. So he really, he, he calls brewers before the Privy Council, he throws them in jail, he finds them. Um, that's a pretty vigorous period of trying to um, reform urban pollution, at least in privileged spaces in, um, in parts of London. 
Uh, again, this is never all of London, um, but but Charles is really pretty active in trying to clean up uh, Westminster anyway. Um, and his son, Charles I, does bits of that after the Restoration. Charles II. Uh, Charles II, thank you. Um, when he comes back to the throne and or back to London and uh, back to power in, in 1660, he he listens to Evelyn when Evelyn pitches his Fumafujian project. He he encourages him. He says, "Oh yeah, sounds good. We'll we'll get right on that." Um, uh, money is not forthcoming, of course, but uh, but he he does show a few signs of actually being sympathetic and being interested in the idea that coal smoke is is dangerous, is ugly, is is a problem. Um, but then, as you say, <coughs> William the William the third who is um, I think I probably just coughed because of William the Third. He's an asthmatic. He he you know he's he's he can't handle um, London smoke at all. He lives he lives well outside of the of the limits of of Westminster to the west. Um, and there's also evidence that Queen Anne, his successor, didn't like it either, and she she prefers to live outside of of the city. So by by 1700, there is never again any attempt by by a monarch or by parliament or by a privy council, basically by the government, the central government in any way, to um, to reform London air and, and the London environment. It, it just doesn't seem... It, I, think it, I think there are probably two things going on. It doesn't seem possible, so why try? <laughs> <laughs> and, and also, um, you know, the, the Charles I's attempts to restrict urban pollution from specific places are all bound up in his vision of the monarchy. And that's not a vision of the monarchy that is, that is really tenable by the late 17th century. He's trying to build spaces that show that he is, I, I guess I would at the end of the day call um, an absolute monarch. His, his, uh, his campaign against, against um, Westminster's brewers happens during the personal rule when parliament is not sitting. Um, so, you know, he's. I think so. I think his concerns and and a lot of the rhetoric that John Evelyn uses in, in Fumafujium are bound up with the idea that if the monarchy is glorious, it should have glorious spaces around it. Um, and by you know by the glorious revolution, by the by the um, kind of declining power of of the of the monarch vis-a-vis Parliament by 1700, that's no longer that's that's kind of a non-starter. Um, so yeah, so much, so I, I think I described that as the the retreat from the royal retreat from regulation. They're just they they remove themselves rather than trying to re- reform the city. And with that removal, you have the, those uh, two chapters near the very end where you describe how people incorporate that perception of the polluted city into their attitudes towards it, either positive or negative. Yeah. Um, yeah, the the second to last chapter, um, chapter twelve, and and I should say the chapters are very short. They're just they're bite sized, so you know don't be prospective readers. Please do not be scared of twelve chapters. <laughs> <laughs> um, so chapter chapter twelve is I think maybe in some ways my favorite chapter because it was the one that um, kind of took me by surprise during the research process. Um, it's it's the one in which I argue that coal smoke became a metaphor for urban life. Um, and it was a useful metaphor, no matter what you wanted to say about urban life. So if you wanted to, 
um, complain about how the city is a horrible place where um, people are sinners and you know they're they're not real Christians or they're not good Englishmen or they don't have any virtue. Um, coal smoke is a nice, um, quick way to do that, um, and it seemed to me that people said that most often in poetry. So in a in a classicizing didactic poem, you tell you would tell somebody you know leave the city, come into the countryside. It's better there. You'll be a better person. Um, but if you wanted to kind of celebrate the city. And say, you know, here in the city we have fun, we're sophisticated, we live a little, um, we know how to enjoy ourselves. Um, um, coal smoke is a useful metaphor to make that point too. So whether you celebrate or attack urban life, either way, um, both sides of that kind of debate see, see air pollution, see, see coal smoke and coal burning as a useful uh, symbol for what what London is, whatever London means, coal smoke is part of it. And so, yeah, that chapter is, has a lot of literary examples. The the, the people celebrating London life are, are more; they tend to be in um, in in dramatic comedies, especially. They're kind of sort of dissipated, and you know, hanging out in the city, going to taverns, going to coffee houses, look trying to start affairs and things like that. Um, they usually get they usually get reformed by the end of the play, but you know at the beginning when they're happy about their dissipation, they celebrate London smoke and and the kind of life you live within it. <laughs> the smoke serves as almost like a a, a, sh- a cover or a screen, uh, if you will. Yeah, one word I, I use fairly often is a, a synecdoche because it's it's such a it's such an efficient way uh, for an author to raise. Um, a whole host of associations. Um, so smoke can just mean whatever it is about the city that you want that you want to mean. The the other poem that that, that comes to mind is uh, the one you quote from uh, Wordsworth, and mm-hmm. which he's looking at the city and the air is clear, and there's this implication that it's the the city is is, is dormant, and so yeah. that by the time you get to Wordsworth, the, you, the city is not alive and vibrant unless it's producing all this black smoke into the air. Yeah, yeah. So that's in in the um, the, the book ends with an epilogue um, where I quote from uh, a few of the best known romantic poets: Wordsworth, um, Byron, if you want to call him a romantic, and, and Shelley. Um, and Wordsworth, in his sonnet on um, on Westminster Bridge, he he describes London uh, sleeping early in the morning, and he refers to the smokeless air, and I think the idea there is that that's worth saying because it's so strange because London is not, London is not a sleepy place. It's a thing that should be awake and, you know, vibrant and busy and loud and, and um, assaulting your senses. And so he has this, this moment of peace um, very early in the morning. Um, um, uh, the line is bright and glittering in the smokeless air. And I think that's so powerful in that poem because it's so clearly about to change. You know, in 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 a just in just a bit, the city will wake up and will become smoky again. And it shows just how indelible that association has become in the minds of contemporaries of yeah. London with coal and coal pollution. Yeah, and so one of the one of the the points that the epilogue makes is um, these romantic poets um, are often seen as 
responding to and reacting against this new industrial city. Um, but when they use um, smokiness to do that, they're not being original at all. They're, they're recycling tropes that are um, 150 years old, um, that, are, that, are, that are said in poems that they would definitely have, have known, poems that are not obscure, that, that Wordsworth and Byron knew they were drawing on. Um, so, and, and so more broadly what that means is that by the time the Industrial Revolution comes, um, in the decades, say, around 1800, England has this long experience of trying to make sense of what it means to be in a city that is very, very productive, um, economically crucial, um, but also sort of disgusting because of that. Um, <laughs> and, and so there's this, so in a, in a sense, the Industrial Revolution is completely new, um, but in some ways it, it's familiar because it's a proliferation of problems that that 17th, 18th century London already offered, you know, long before. Fascinating. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I'm thinking about two sort of new topics and questions, um, both of which came out of uh, the research on smoke in, in different ways. Um, the first is broadly climate change in the early modern period and, and how and why that was important to people. Um, I found a lot of records on really nasty winters. There were, there were some deep freezes and nasty winters when it was unusually cold, when the Thames froze, there was no commerce, um, work was scarce, prices were high. Um, and and coal distribution became very very important in those moments, um, and so from that I'm I'm thinking more broadly about what the Little Ice Age meant for Britain more broadly for for England, how people um, what people knew about climate, how they interpreted um, cold winters, um, how government governmental bodies from the local to the central level responded to various kinds of emergencies and, and disasters. Um, so, so climate is, is one avenue. And the other thing that I've just started to think about is, is animals. Um, in looking through parish records, I found that um, English parishes, which are in a lot of ways the most local form of government in the, in the early modern period, what a lot of them spent their time doing is trying to kill vermin in the countryside. And one of the kind of defining characteristics of British culture in the modern period is that they love animals. And, you know, if you, if you hurt animals in Britain, you're an absolute monster. Um, and, yet, and yet I found a huge archive of records of basically state-sponsored and state-directed killing of all sorts of animals in, the, in, the, in, in rural Britain. And so I'm thinking about... Uh, about how to make sense of that, what kind of what that means, how it connects with agricultural improvement, and what it tells us about about the state and government and people's reactions, uh, people's relationships with government. Those both sound like fascinating projects. Yeah. Well, William, uh, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us today about uh, the smoke of London. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs>